Eddie and I start out talking about pellet grills, the fastest growing outdoor cooking method there is known right now, and also his commissary that is like no other. You just have to listen to understand. Welcome to the Butcher Barbecue Podcast, world headquarters, Wellston, Oklahoma. The Butcher Turned Pitmaster, your host, David Bosca. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Butcher Barbecue Podcast. We have a friend, a fellow cook, and the guy who originated all the pellet cookers I cook on. This is Fast Eddie Marn. Well, how you doing there, David? We're doing good, Ed. You ready to get going with this? I say we're ready. Let's just get jumped right into it, both feet. Well, that's a big thing right now, you know. Pellets is the hot deal. You ain't a kidding there. Before we get too deep into it, for anybody that's living under a rock that's listening to this podcast, tell everybody who Fast Eddie is. Fast Eddie lives in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm a welder fabricator by trade. I made a living as a firefighter for Kansas City, Missouri. I started playing in the barbecue competition world in 1986. 1990 is when I was introduced to the Traeger pellet grill by a guy named Bob Robinson. Then uh, Bob brought this grill to me and he said, would you cook on it? And I said, after I watched him at a contest, I said, yeah, I'll cook on that thing. And I did all the things you're not supposed to do on a pellet grill. So, uh, I got pellets wet. I jammed the auger, caught it on fire. I did a lot of things that you should have seen the form they were in back in the day. That's there's these stories can go on and on and on, but I'm going to highlight that. And I did understand one thing that I felt like was going to, this pressed sawdust wood pellet was someday going to change the barbecue industry. I didn't know it was going to take I don't know. I think it's really started changing the industry probably 2005, 2006, when Traeger finally sold the company to an investment group. They kept on to it pretty tight. The patent ran out in 2008 that they had. When other companies started coming into it, uh, that's when it, it, it started changing. It was always kind of a niche thing until that point and i but i knew because of what it did for barbecue i i knew it was going to be a game changer someday and uh, that someday's hitting like a rocket right now with 22 companies now making pellet grills 22 yeah 22 that is huge yeah yeah the vast majority of them, of course is coming across the water things are done a whole lot cheaper you know you know when you start talking about this little press sawdust thing these little pellets you know when as a competition cook and cooking with sticks when i started my career that moisture content in that wood and the bark and trying to keep it consistent and the airflow in it you know you're tracking all that stuff trying to trying to recreate the exact same flavor every single time and yeah you actually i track the weather uh too Man, when, when, when those little pellet thingies started coming down that auger and going into a forced air draft, that changed all that. You did not, not have to any longer really chase that down because, especially back then, there was not very many. There was only like one or two brands of pellets to use. You know, brands of pellets have some variation in them because of the moisture content and the wood content that they got in them. Back in the day, it wasn't nearly like that. 
it, very interesting now. There's a little bit of variation in the product um, because of all the different manufacturers of that product compared to what it used to be. But man, it was but consistency was off off the chart, and that's what a guy you know a competition cook. But what we we always try to want to reproduce the exact same thing every single time. And that's what you found the first time, second time. How long did it take you cooking on one till you said, I think I can do this? Probably that first week of messing with it, you know, that's when I, I finally, I said, it, it, it was, that's, that's, my mind was made up that this was going to be something. And wow. it, it, it just used to keep me up at night. Okay. Cause I was working, me and my dad, my dad had a little, fabricating and weld shop and we did a lot of kitchen work in restaurants around kansas city of course there are a lot of barbecue restaurants in kansas city and i've seen a lot of old hickories and southern prides and and brick pits and and jnr oilers and and i worked on a lot of those pits, especially oilers back in the day they they needed a lot of attention the oilers did kc masterpiece had had two of them a company called bodie's barbecue had three and they had two stores so they had six there was a couple other stores had two a couple of them in each they used to rot the flue boxes out in them they get rusty what happened is you know when you burn that wood you're making that creosote and that creosote get on them walls well moisture would get in behind it of course inside of a, 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 a smoker and a pit there's a hell of a lot of moisture and that's what those uh, good smokers do they trap all that they keep all that moist atmosphere in there while that stuff's cooking and of course the moisture's coming out of the protein of the meat while it's dripping and going around there and you and i both know when you got those big loads on those big rotisserie pits and that stuff's all dripping and it's just like a steam bath inside there as they're cooking and that's when that food really gets good well that was getting in behind there on that steel and all that creosote and it would rust out those flue boxes and, and on the boilers that's how they controlled their fire, those big long fires that they have, is by how much air those fires were sucking. It had these boxes that it would have, it would open these vents up and down. Well, the boxes would end up rotting out, and of course, it would start sucking air in other places. And then we'd have to go in and disassemble the cabinets on them, take all the insulation off around them, cut the old sheet metal out, weld it, re and, and rebuild those flue boxes on them. And it was to the point where we were there doing, it seemed like once a month, we were in somebody's store in the middle of the night, rebuilding their flue boxes on their pits. And then we got to rebuilding doors because doors started rotting out and the moisture getting in them. And they weren't real keen on using a lot of stainless steel back in the day. And uh, now things are all changing, you know, where keeps a lot of that stuff from happening but that's where i got my experience at in the commercial cooker world was being out there in the middle of night tearing these things apart and rebuilding them fixing them up that's the background of fast eddie well that's what i would say the one thing i took out of that conversation being an older guy was you said overnight but i don't think i could do that anymore <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> No, it, yeah. it, and that's what changed things. I mean, you know, we all teams would get together, and it was a, we started out. I started out. We were dudes barbecue. Me and a, a, a Neil Van Hoosier. And I can't remember. We had a third guy that was with us, and and you know the partying that went on. Well, I wanted to get more serious about it. And in 1990, 
that's when I, of course, seen the pellet grill. And I was wanting to break off on my own, and and I wanted, I knew if I was going to do this and keep doing it and get serious about it, I was going to have to step up the game. And that's when, the, you know, especially after seeing pellets. I'll tell you though, the form I was cooking on it was very disgusting, messing with it, you know. And in 92 is when I finally started taking a torch to Traeger stuff and started working on playing around revamping it. 94 is, I think, when I started cooking on my own version of the FE100. I had a, a unit bolted to the bumper in my motorhome. Man, it was it was pretty rough. You know, the three-speed switch with an uh, old-time thermostat that you'd have in your oven hooked to it. You'd leave it in the smoke mode, and then that thermostat would override that. And if it got below a temperature, it'd kick that auger on, and then it would uh, kick it off. And, and it was not very consistent at all. You know, 30, 40-degree temperature swings were normal with it. Of course, we still make great food. You know, I mean, everybody's all worried about one or two degrees it's, you know, which is all hocus pocus. A lot of it is, you know, but I like that. The swinging action is really what makes the thing smoke, you know. That's right. Yeah. It, Today it, I had a guy in my shop and we were talking about, he got a Brand X smoker and he was saying it really swings a lot. And, and I was trying to explain to him that the smoker or sorry, the pellet grills, that say we will stay within three degrees of the set or five degrees of the set. I tried to explain to him, that's not where you're going to get good smoke. That's why everybody is missing this flavor. So explain to everyone the basis of inconsistent cooking is sometimes better than that real consistent temp. Yeah. I mean, it's charred on there and, and you know, if it's within a, and it would always be, let's, let's say you take a five minute cycle you know, well, in a five-minute cycle, you go for, let's say you're trying to run at 250 degrees. Well, in that five-minute cycle, you would go from, you know, about 225, 230 degrees to maybe 270 degrees, okay? But the average, what's going to come out across that, when you start looking at that, it's going to be about the 250-degree set you got it at. So, and as pellets burn down to coals, and then the new ones get introduced into the fire pot, and that smoldering action before they turn into flame is where your smoke's produced, okay? And the lower temperature you run it at, the more that that happens. And it, we probably at Cook Shack, the Fast Eddies and, and the Cook Shack pellet grills, we're, I think we're the only ones on the marketplace right now that haven't switched to a PID controller. We have what we call low heat and high heat timing where you can go in and you can change those parameters yourself. This also is what allows that cooker to be able to go from cold smoking in the warming drawer. You can put a pan of ice over the warming drawer rails and you can set that low heat and high heat timing down to like 15. That's one and a half seconds on and it's 13 and a half seconds off on the feed cycle of the pellets. And the low heat timing means that's what I call the pilot light. And then the high heat timing is when it says I need, I need heat and it's going to kick on and it's going to keep in that high heat timing until it reaches a set temperature. Well, to cold smoke, you really want to keep it below ambient temperature, and you really want it below 90 degrees. And that's what that pan of ice does. It helps keep that, because cold goes down. That's why we have ice above the warming drawer. And you put your tomatoes or your locks or whatever you're trying to just flavor with smoke in the warming drawer, 
and we set it on little cookie uh, drying racks so they're up off the, you know, you have air all the way around it. You set that, you change those parameters on that controller down there to like 15 and 15, and you just let it go, and it just basically smolders. Maybe it might light up once in a blue moon, but it mainly just smolders the, the pellet. When you turn those uh, that high heat timing up, which you can go to 15, you go to 150 on the high heat timing, that means it's going to run continuous, never shut off until it reaches set temp. And of course, the controller only goes to 600 degrees. But at set temp of 600 degrees on that char boiler, and you've never, and you're running it all the way up, it's going to give you over a thousand degrees above it. So it's the only cooker in the world that you can go to cold smoking and a thousand degrees on the char boiler with the same piece of equipment. All you've done is change the timing. That's it. Explain about the BTUs burning and smoldering and all that. Well, BTU output, it all comes down to weight, you know, pellets, even charcoal, but you know, decent pellets are going to be close to 8,000 BTUs to the pound is what they're going to be. And so depending upon how much fuel or how much weight per hour that little motor and auger will produce is going to tell you your output of the fire pot, okay? So in our grills right now, you, you're going to, you, you, it'll weigh out enough fuel that it's, you're going to be somewhere between forty to 45,000 BTUs in that small pellet grill. That thing will flat get to roaring. And I'm sure you've seen it happen when you've played around with it. Oh, yeah. You know, it's amazing how quick you can, you can change, the, you know, how the, the temperature in that thing. But it, what, what we've done is we've given the flexibility to the cook with it. And I, I feel like that's hugely important there. You want to you sear steaks? Well, most of the time I got the thing, you know, set at probably 90 or 100 is where I've got mine set out on the high heat timing. And I usually run my low heat timing anywhere between 10 and 15. But even at 400 degrees, or I'll turn it up to five or so, or 550, I'm, I'm cooking on that char boiler around 600 is where I'm at. And uh, if you took an IR gun and shot that char boiler, cooking great. So a 600 seared steak's pretty good. I can go up a little higher, you know, seven, 750, 1,000. I'm going to tell you right here now is ridiculous. But, you know, the, 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 there's people in this world that want the ridiculous. They, you know, they read stuff. Oh, you got, I got to have a thousand degrees is what I got to have. Well, we've built equipment to the ridiculous is what we've done because we absolutely made things just like our new pizza oven. We got out, you know, we were, that was probably one of the last things we had a huge discussion about, you know, the Neapolitan guys that make a Neapolitan pizza say 900. I got to cook 900, you know, and really 900 is, is kind of BS. It depends on where that 900's at in that pizza oven. But we built a pizza oven that will do 900 degrees on the controller. And I will tell you this, when Stuart took it to testing to the laboratory and they do a locked rotor test, they actually try to destroy the piece of equipment. And and they'll run a whole hopper. You can tell 22 pounds of pellets they'll run out of that thing. He said it was 14-something. It was over 1,400 degrees for a whole hopper full of pellets. 
Okay. And it didn't catch fire, didn't melt down, didn't do anything. No, he said it. It the door the door bowed a little bit on it, but it came back. You know, <laughs> hell, uh, I would too. You know, I mean, but I mean, how many people are testing their equipment uh, fourteen hundred degrees? You know, and that's what that's what the deal on that testing stuff means. You know, it, it's that testing label for, to be able to go into these buildings. It, it it's uh, they rigorously. It's about a three day ordeal in the test lab with all the different things that they test and the temperatures on the handle and they put they put sensors all around it and how close you know you can have it to a wall and i mean it's 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 quite the test that happens with our stuff and that when you've seen those when you see the labels on them it means something there's no doubt about that ul you're talking etl ul the nsf even for nsf more of a, a food grade thing for food how cleanliness things can be and and well it so everything's good and cleanable you know yeah they do tip tests they do water tests they you know like it's raining for outside it you know and, i mean it goes on and on and really the testing when you see those testing labels on your grills that's or, or your cookers that's what really means it means a lot well, I don't think anybody would doubt the knowledge, the testing that you slash cook shack do go through, think about. Okay. And you said 22 other grill companies out on the market. There is some crazy, crazy advertisements that are out there. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's coming up with a new, a new gimmick. Uh, I, I know it's not a gimmick. Gimmick. That's a great I, word. I, I, I wouldn't say necessarily gimmick. Uh, I would say uh, unique type of advertising. Um, I'm going to be and you had this little conversation before we went on air here. Let's talk about the new uh, grill advertising where they're talking about steaming as they're cooking. And uh, we actually talk about the moisture content of the wood and how much moist, how much more moist your atmosphere is cooking commercially with 100% wood compared to gas and logs. Okay. And when you burn gas, it actually makes a hydrocarbon. And where that moisture is, make hydrocarbons coming out of the oxygen side of the scenario. Burn, and when that gas comes out to burn and it's sucking that oxygen in into it, it, the higher the moisture content in the air, actually, the more gas it takes to burn. And I had thought it was real funny one time we went to do a demo for Smoky Bones, which was a Darden group at one time. There used to be a whole lot of them around the country. It was a pretty good sized chain. And they had a guy that was a Memphis and May cook. That was their chief cook. We're down in Florida at their test kitchen. The guy's talking to us and he goes, man, we got these log and gas pits. I'm not going to use their name, but... He goes, we fill the bottom of it up with water. And it takes us about three hours to have these things running to get them to temperature before we can load them. And I just laugh. Really? That makes sense. Can you imagine that three to run your run your pit for three hours trying to heat that up before you even put the protein on it? You know, and it's like, holy cow, man. And then another thing, too, when those guys burning gas, that when they open those doors up for their listing, that, that gas has to shut off when they open the doors. And on ours, when you open the doors and that temperature drops, we start feeding fuel. Fuel starts coming down those ramps and dropping into those fire pots, and those fires start coming up. So we got that fire rip roaring by the time you shut those doors. And so your recovery's a whole lot less. 
And you and I both, you know, when you're getting in and out of these pits, recovery time becomes a lot, especially taking product off, putting product on, trying to do mix and match different products, cooking at the same time, restaurant style. You know, it's people don't think about that. That you know, here we'll go back to this. You got to have this temperature exact all the time. Well, no, those guys don't. I mean, think about it. You got a couple hundred pounds of product on there, and you got a bunch of briskets to wrap or butts or whatever you're doing. You, you, I bet that pit sure lost some temp, didn't it? You know. Oh yeah. And, and your product lost temp too. Of course, you're going back into brazing when you do that, but still. Uh, but you know, it's it's funny to 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 hear all this and main. You know, you and I both know the main thing is get it cooked to the right tenderness and get it off. And hopefully, you did your job, put a bunch of good flavor in it. That's what it's all about. Grills, smokers, pellet, wood. We can go on and on and on. And there be 300 podcasts about that. But I want to talk about Fast Eddie. I want to go with something that you started. All cooks evolve and do things. There's the evolution of the grills. You've had the evolution of the smokers, etc. A few years back, you started something that I thought was brilliant. Um, and that's your commissary. Tell us about what this is. Well... In the food service world out there, I'm going to, you know, think about the mom and pops or the folks wanting to get started and doing something in food service or catering or making a food product or whatever. The The commissary rentable kitchen is uh, starting to become a thing. You know, you need some place that you can get licensed on to go into and be able to make your product and without having hundreds of thousands of dollars and setting up and buying a building and doing something on your own. You just want to go in and be able to rent some time, do what you need to do and get out and, and go sell what you're doing. Okay. That's what this is all about. It's, it's about those, the small purveyor, but mine's based around uh, what they call commissary for food trucks, food trucks and mobile food units, in different areas of the country have to have what they call a commissary they're signed on to. Now, a commissary could be as much as their buddy's restaurant, but it has to have a couple features that makes it conducive for mobile food, where it's got to have it like an RV-type dump situation where they can come in and dump their gray water off their trucks, and uh, that way it can be recycled back to the city or the sewer system where it came from. So you want to be able to buy water and then put water, dirty water back in the same system is what their main concern is. And then also the commissary is a place, the food trucks have very little sinks on them. Of course, everybody's got bigger stuff than they'll fit in those sinks. And the, the commissary is where you come back and you got a dishwasher and you have big sinks where you can wash all your big stuff. And then also where you want to do your dry goods storage, you know, and you can also have refrigeration at your commissary for, you know, a freezer or refrigeration to do, do things, you know, and, and store stuff. And then also, too, we have electricity at here. They also can park their food trucks and then plug them in and keep them hot or, I mean, keep the, the electrical hot. And then also, I mean, a lot of them are run a little electric heaters in them in the wintertime and, and they'll that way allows them to run in really cold weather the unit's ready to go and they don't have to winterize it but that's a that's what the food truck it i call mine food truck central in kansas city it's but it's mainly based around this rentable kitchen for k 
caterers, bakers come in and use this kitchen. I, big deal right now is meal kit people that are making like, you know, prepared meals and, and delivering to folks. Uh, healthy eating. I had a company called Fresh Healthy Fast, which is nothing but a plant-based food, was in here making product. They 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 were here for six months before they got their brick and mortar op- open. I've got a guy that's coming in next week that he does nothing but raw vegetable prepping stuff. It's amazing how much I'm talking to a lot of caterers because people want to get into catering and get licensed in order to be able to to show they are a licensed entity have to have an inspected facility that they're signed on to and that's getting written no this is my busy season right now okay you'd said something about refrigeration freezers dry storage does every tenant have their own spot or do you have a general great big one that's a good question i have a mentor in this business which is one of my customers out of chicago that I helped start in the barbecue industry from back in the 1998. His name is Jay Stagg. Jay has a company called Chicago Smoke Kitchen, and his kitchen is on the end of a 120-door truck dock building. So what? Yeah, there was 120 doors for truck docks. You know, it's 100 feet across that dock, and there's 60 doors down one side and 60 doors across it down the other side. And then at the end, he had about a 2,000 square foot structure added on the end of it that about a thousand feet of it was kitchen and then he had a smoker room on it that had one of my 750s in it and then he's got a walk-in freezer and a walk-in cooler and there's also a wash line uh, out in there it's in a separate room too it's a dishwater dishwasher line and all so I knew Jay was in that business and I went up there and visited with him thinking about what to do this here in Kansas City and pick his brain and see what his stuff was like the funny thing about the refrigeration side, Jay locked his <laughs> walk-ins and freezers. He used to try to do it by the shelf where they'd rent space, but you know how the health department is. You can only put certain products over the top of other certain products. In order for you know people to learn that, vertical-type storage didn't work very well. And also, renters don't treat stuff. They treat stuff differently. And it's not essentially the renter himself. It's like they also have employees that they don't train very well. And they'll leave doors open and they do stupid stuff. Well, that affects a whole bunch of people's lives when you have them all grouped into one deal. So what I on his recommendation, what I do is I've got storage lockers that we've built out here from 70 square feet to about 200 square feet. And in these they're just plywood rooms with doors on them. We put power on those rooms, and people come in and put their own refrigeration in. I just I just set a flat fee for the month for the power on that room is what I do. And, oh, so, okay. and so that way, everybody is responsible for their own power. I have each one on its own separate circuit breaker, and uh, so it nobody can trip each other's breaker. Then the only one that's responsible for the power on that unit is the the power company then. And if the power doesn't happen and gets shut off, it's an act of God. I didn't have anything to do with it. So the power's at your own risk, just like it is to my building. So that's that kind of saves on the liability aspect of it. Okay. You had kind of described some of the different customers you have with being caterers wanting to get started but needed uh, a facility to where they didn't have a lot of money to get started you'd said a baker at one point obviously food trucks 
and it's health department inspected, but let's say they're in Kansas City, you have someone that wants to start making their own sauce to sell. Is your facility able to house that as far as health department? Yeah, as long as they're they can they can come in here and you know it's not a protein, so they could actually get a processing license. They could be in here making the sauce right here in my facility. Very nice. Yeah, I have a tilt kettle in here. I had bought one. You know, you and I worked on trying to get that transformer to work. I have a tilt skillet. I got a forty gallon tilt skillet in here. I've had people mess around making sauces in it. My biggest customer is actually an Italian restaurant in this town. And they use this kitchen for their wedding catering facility. And they ran 250 weddings out of here last year out of this kitchen. This oh, last, wow. This last weekend, Mario was in there. He had three different caterings going on. And he actually cooked for just under 900 people out of this kitchen. I got to wrap my head around this. This yeah. is huge. I mean, a restaurant can take on any business, any catering not worry about his facility or disrupting his walk-up. Right. Yeah, he can just send a crew down there and just take care of what they would be doing in the back of the house. Yeah, he's got one of my 200-square-foot storage units over here. Got a bunch of Cambros stacked on the wall. He's got three pieces of refrigeration equipment. They come drop his food order on Thursday. And a lot of times he's here Friday and Saturday, especially through wedding season. But this last Friday, last weekend, it was just Saturday when they were in here. He has four ladies that are his sous chefs that come in here with the chef himself and, and a dishwasher gal that did dishwashing. So there were six of them in the kitchen. I mean, they made food for just under 900 people in, in an eight-hour time frame out of here. Now, when you start putting the numbers to that, okay, he was able to rent this kitchen. He has, he doesn't have to worry about any repairs. He's not paying any taxes. He's not doing any of the trash. He's not having to do any of the maintenance on the sewers, you know, the grease trap, none of that stuff. He's not having to clean the ventilation. All he's doing is playing a, a paying a flat out per hour fee to use that kitchen and a per month fee for the storage. They flat love me. I'm telling you. Okay. So for these fees, which is nominal. Yes. They get a key to the building. Yeah, it's 24-7 access. I have I have key I have a electronic locks, you know. And uh, we do we use a calendar and I've got people come in and cook and work on stuff in the middle of the night. You know, I actually discount my kitchen hours because that's when it's used the least. And so in order to get it used some, that's when I get the cheapest hours is in the middle of the night. But you well, that's what I was going to ask. So what if you've got two people needing the kitchen at the same time? Do that when they rent, rent the place, do they get like every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or do they have to put in on a Google calendar when that needs it and they can only yeah. take the available openings. We do. Uh, we use a, we use a calendar, but they email us and asking for the dates of, or times of what's available. And then we'll tell them what, and it, how we do it is, is you reserve the appliances and we've got different prep stations in the kitchen and you reserve what appliances you want. I have, I have some multiple appliances in my line and then also I can plug and play some stuff in the kitchen too. So for instance, like I had a donut company in here, they, they were remodeling their place. They, they wanted to work from five in the evening till about two in the morning. 
is what they wanted to do. The guy had he is Daylight Donuts here in Kansas City area, and they had seven retail stores that they fed these donuts to. And then they had a van come in and picked, and they had a, a donut fryer table that was also a glazing table. And they his staff would come in here and be making donuts. And then I was able to roll that table out from underneath the hood, put it over in, in, in a, against the wall, and then I was able to move my regular equipment back under the hood for my caterers uh, to come in. So I could I mix, I could mix and match some stuff, you know, in there to fit other people's needs, you know. So you just got to make sure your fire suppression set up for it, which I did, and and knew right where I could place things. So. Um, but it, it's a, it's fit, definitely fitting a need that's out there. There's not a lot of places that I'm not necessarily an incubator. There are places that are considered incubators where you could go into and and they, if you say I, I want to make barbecue sauce, well they could take you from developing a recipe, and and how to go to market and the whole bit and then get you started making your stuff to a small level. And uh, but they can handhold you through that whole business process. And I'm I'm not quite. Uh, what you would call an incubator because I don't have the staff on hand here to hire, to take you, you know, for handhold you, but I'm more of a, after you've got it, after you've been messing with it a little bit, or you can do all that stuff on your own, that's, you know, or a lot of people's already been cooking. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people have already been catering from their home and things. Now they're trying to figure out how to get legal without being caught and, and they want to they want to be able to step up and go into the bigger halls where people are asking for that license, you know those kinds of things. There's a lot of that already going on out there. So I'm the next step for them to, uh, but I'm still they're not ready for their own place by no means. That that's a big jump there when you got to start paying that kind of overhead. So it's conducive to pay by the hour, come down here, work, you know, try to work in the time frames around this. But most generally, we're able to pretty well work with everybody and figure out a way for them to get their food and, and to um, do stuff. So is it a pay by month by month no, for contracts? Straight on the hour. How I do it, I pre-sell kitchen hours. That way I don't have to chase nobody for money. We You have to buy a minimum of 10 hours at a time. And it's a one-hour minimum once you come into the kitchen. Then it works on a 15-minute cycle after that. And okay. uh, my my wash line is out in my warehouse where I'm the dishwasher and the big wash line. And it's got the same price point per hour, but that's first come, first serve on the wash line. So if you come back from a catering, you may be waiting on the line. There might be a food trucker ahead of you or something, you know. And uh, it's funny. When a bunch of them get to come back or, you know, food trucks come back, you'll see them out there helping each other. They'll start their own uh, work line. <laughs> well, that's kind of neat. Yeah, it's very interesting how people work with each other and things. It's amazing because they, they really like to talk and associate, and, and they, they bounce a lot of ideas off each other. The food truck community is pretty tight to how they learn off of each other. It's very interesting. And they all want, you know, because they're all their own entity, but they all want the whole industry to do well. Uh, it's very interesting to watch them work. Everybody knows that the secret to a business is location, location, location. I'm sure this is no different. <laughs> well, How did you pick your location? Uh, very simple. I wanted to be Central City, and I wanted to be right on top of Restaurant Depot, where most of, most of my customers shop. So I'm a quarter of a mile from Restaurant Depot, and I'm right in the heart of Kansas City. I'm in the West Bottoms between Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri. I'm a half mile from downtown Kansas City, Missouri. Easy access to interstates? 
Yeah, all the interstates, they all circle right around me. I-70, 670, 35, 29, uh, they all circle the, the whole bottoms area right here. So the whole interchange is right around, right around. Well, see, it's simple then. Location is not a big deal. Just do what you did. <laughs> Look at the needs. <laughs> Look at the needs. And, and we're, the main thing is, you know, like food trucks. I really, when I went, I went to a conference on these incubator kitchens and, and rentable kitchens and stuff. And nobody used, nobody had my business model. <laughs> food trucks is what pays my base. Okay. That's what pays my overhead, keeps this, all the bills paid around here. And, it, and they don't, they're, they're, they run about nine, eight or nine months a year here in the Kansas City market. I do have a handful that run all year long, but the majority of them are only eight or nine months. But that revenue is enough to completely pay all my overhead, but any labor that I have down here. So me and my partner and his wife, we've got it down to where the office staff is basically part-time here. So we, you know, and of course I use it as a test kitchen for the barbecue stuff. I was, I was out doing a, a pizza demo today uh, with my pizza rig, I'm bouncing my my equipment business off of using this facility too. All right, since you brought this up, pizza rig, define pizza rig. Well, if you want to go to Facebook, and the best place to go see it is look up 451 Pizza, and that is my new pizza trailer that has the Cook Shack pizza ovens on it, and you'll see a kind of a prototype pizza where we've stacked it. We got them uh, one on top of another. You know, here again, it's 100% wood-cooked pizza. There's a, a, I did a Facebook Live thing that you can go watch that video on that. See, you can see the trailer. You can see how I've laid it out. You can actually see pizzas go in and out of the oven. I, I put that together to showcase the ovens because, you know, the pies we're cooking are three minutes. I'm cooking my, almost sort of a Nor- New Yorkish style pizza, and it, we're running at 700 degrees uh, for three minutes is what I'm running. So is your rig a vending or is it a demo truck? No, well, it's actually, we, we, we licensed it and we branded it you know, to uh, actually bend with it. Craig Jones is a partner of mine. Craig and Gay have gone and done the NRA shows with us at Cook Shack. Craig is, uh, he was the grill mayor for Food Network one year. He actually works for Sprint, but he's a foodie, does a lot of food cooking classes here in town. Changed him over to being a pellet head now from being a charcoal guy. (laughs) (laughs) And I made him pretty lazy (laughs) compared to what he used to have to do. Very interesting that we've kind of changed his life. But anyway, knowing how he, he loves pizza, and I said, Craig, let's, you know, I need to brand this thing. Why don't we, why don't we put a branding on it? You know, dream, you know, we all like to dream a little bit. My dream of this is be like a Hunts Brothers of pizza. You know, the, 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 that impinging oven that's out there now, and Turbo Chef's our direct competitor in this uh, lineup of cooking equipment. And I could see, you know, people needing to put some kind of food service in like a brewery or someplace pizza has great margins in it pizza is easy to do doesn't take a lot of equipment to do you can actually make some artisan type product you can actually make a hundred percent wood cook without having somebody really be a cook because when you put a pie in this oven you hit the timer and when the timer goes off you take the pie out and it's perfect i mean there's nothing like it this guy we were cooking for today He's a consultant here in Kansas City, and he's got a couple pizza places. He was on the ground floor of the startup of Godfather's Pizza. He was 
pretty amazed how 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 even this this oven cooked. He's he's actually cooked on turbo chefs too, and he said, "My God, that thing cooks extremely well." He he's all about deck ovens and likes big ones and and having you know this is a single pie oven, wood fired pies. They're cooked very quick. And we actually turned it down and ran it like his deck oven today. And we were doing tests with Rich's products. You'll, you'll see Rich's, R-I-C-H-S. Uh, they have all kinds of dough products. Their rep was there. and She brought several different types of pies. The one I was impressed with today was they've got a new sweet potato crust. For the, what? Yeah, it's made out of sweet potatoes. And it was um, for the gluten-free crowd. It's a thin crust pie. I actually ran it at 650 degrees for three minutes. The type of cheese... Kevin likes to use uh, didn't quite brown the cheese up, so I went back in for another thirty seconds and got it just so I, I cooked that pie in three minutes and thirty seconds, and it came out perfect. It was a really uh, it's gonna it got me really excited because I'd like to carry a gluten free product with us, you know, to go do some stuff. We get asked about that. I never had tasted one. I really liked and this a sweet potato one. It's got just a little bit of a sweet undertone to the crust, which people like. Um, I think this is I think this is a huge home run for Rich's products, personally. The big hit right now with dinner rolls and everything is those Hawaiian rolls. Oh, so yeah. that could be huge. Right. That, I think it could be uh, myself. So, and it gives us an option to use. We hand stretch our other pies. You know, the the real because that's what makes them airy when you you know when you're hand stretching those pies, and that's what makes them. Fluffy, and that's what makes them help them bubble up. Uh, okay, okay, run, run okay. Eddie, mm-hmm. Eddie, you need to do a Facebook live video of you tossing. I gotta see you with your <laughs> knuckles in the air spinning. I'm not good at. You got to do this. I, I'm, I'm not. I, I'm not much of a tosser. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm a stretcher and knuckles and stuff like that. But I'm not. I'm not a tosser. Now the guy. <laughs> that's in that video he's playing around with it my trailer's a little low it needs to be another uh, if i did a 2.0 it'd definitely be a foot taller in the trailer because i want more vertical storage anyway but yeah i'm not i'm not much of a pie tosser (laughs) oh that would be classic i'm gonna go back to the pellet grill or pellet cooking thing too a little bit one thing i want to bring up and you know you're using the PG 500. You know you notice how low the vent is on that PG 500 where we let the smoke out of it. This moisture that you're getting coming off your proteins cooking, and also the moisture that's in that wood. If you notice, we really trap it in that smoker. That's one of the keys to our cookers compared to anybody else in the marketplace that's doing a hundred wood, hundred percent wood cooked product from our commercial cookers to our pellet grills. This is why we cook even temperatures across our cooking zones. And this is why also that we have better flavor. We're holding the smoke in longer and we're keeping, we're keeping that moisture in the oven, in the smoker, in the grill. We're keeping that because of how we tune and, and how, where we finally release and let those exhaust gases come out of that equipment. That is a huge key to our products, our patent. You guys take a look at that. When you're looking at, at cooking equipment out there, if you my my thing would be if it has a flue at the top of it or, you know, if your vents aren't way below your cooking surface, 
you're not trapping you're not trapping everything you need to be trapping in your cooker interesting i knew the reason of it but i wouldn't have thought of moisture being a part of that oh yes part of the recipe you know when you're burning when you're burning and cooking or whatever everything's a recipe and and that's the recipe of uh, fire management and, and and also the atmosphere management that goes on inside that smoker is that possibly part of the reason why in the big rotisserie units your stack actually comes down inside the chamber yes sir that's exactly right i was curious yep after you said that yep yeah that's and see that that thought process is what brought it along into the grill Okay. Now there's a huge key there. Okay. When you have a bottom feed, uh, grill or bottom feed burn unit where pellets are coming into the bottom of that fire pot, it's hard on those bottom feed systems trapping that much heat. Okay. And you're talking about a straight auger. Well, where it goes into the pot itself, it doesn't let pellets roll down into the pot. Okay, where okay. they're fed in. I call them bottom feed. Pellets will start to swell when they get to a certain temperature, and different brands of pellets have different br- amounts of moisture content in them. And when you're turning that auger on and off, when you turn it off and that swells, and you hear this creaking and popping going on, that's what's happening. It's binding on the auger. Okay. And depending upon how long that auger is, your binding's all out there by the fire pot. It's not down there. It's not under the hopper, okay? It's at the end of the auger. So you can, the torque difference is huge. When, when you've got torque right there on top of the motor is way different than when you got it 12, 16, 18 inches away, and then you bind it off, okay? Oh, yeah. And these are just little shaded pole motors running these systems, and you'll hear people, oh, my fire went out. Well, it bound up, and then it finally it, it slowed it down enough, or it stopped it. And uh, then once it got free and got going again, it was out. Okay, you weren't able to maintain your fire. So you'll you'll see you'll see things. You know, people write about, well, my you know, I had pellets everywhere, and then when it relit, I had this huge fire, and and or. I'm hearing this snapping and popping going on or locked up. My unit's locked up. It's stuck or something. I mean, all those are are historically problems with a bottom feed unit. As you called it a while ago, it's a recipe. Yes, sir. And that's not a good recipe. Not a good recipe. No, no. We got to, I got away. We fought that. I messed with it for years with Traeger. And also the tighter you vent something, the worse it makes it. Of course, nobody vents tighter than we do. You know, I had to figure that out a long, long time ago, and it was so happy to get away from that bottom feed. That's why we went to dropping pellets in. You notice everything we do drops pellets down a ramp. And yes. we've, we've been doing that for a long, long time. Well, any, is there anything else? We're coming close to a minute. Well, I'm thinking probably talked here long enough and got people's ears pretty tired. We probably ought to let them go. Well, tell everybody where they can follow Fast Eddie. Ooh, well, you can, uh, I just got my own personal Facebook page. It's got mostly my desert racing stuff on it, but we do have pelletcooker.com. You can go to the Pellet Cooker Facebook page, which is the Cook Shack Grills. I don't keep up on it real well. I tried to, but Pellet Cooker on Facebook is a page that we have uh, Cook Shack grills on and some Cook Shack cooking. You can follow me at 451 Pizza 
or the pizza rig, what's going on in pizza. You can friend me on a Facebook at Ed Morin. How can they get a hold of you to, say, rent a spot over at your commissary? Food Truck Central KC. That's also a Facebook page you can go to, or that is a website. That's a www.foodtruckcentralkc.com site. You can you can look up our deal there. You know, I need a couple, three more things to do. I, I think I got a few hours <laughs> left in the day. I can probably figure out something. I think your wife's got it figured out. Come six, seven o'clock, she locks herself downstairs and doesn't matter what you're doing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eddie, I really appreciate it. I know you're very, very busy. I hope everybody gets a kick out of listening to this. Thanks for calling me and asking me to do it. I really appreciate it. We know Butcher's has some of the best barbecue products there is on on the marketplace, and uh, everybody's shelves should have a lot of it. Well, we appreciate that that input. All right, everybody. You bet. Everybody, listen to it and learn from it, because there's a ton of nuggets in there. (laughs) And it won't only help you with the way you cook on pellets, but it'll help you understand pellet cooking. Hit that like button. Hit the subscribe button. We appreciate every one of you. Smash that subscribe button and be ready for Butcher's next podcast.